Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 171 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your hosts, Ugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Hi, Ralph. Good morning. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning. I'm doing very well. And it is morning here in Southern California where I'm at right now. Is it sunny California or how's the. <laughs> it's gorgeous, sunny Southern California, unlike. Uh, cold Chicago at this time of year in February that I just left yesterday. So it's very welcome. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. Um, yeah. As for me, I'm home today. I just returned. I had a flight to this morning from Frankfurt, Germany, where I went for some business meetings. Um, kind of taking it easy this afternoon, just uh, relaxing and preparing for this uh, interview. Uh, I'm also preparing. I need. A, I'm relaxing, but I just realized I have a ton of things to do before leaving for Venice, where I'll be uh, going in less than three days. I'm off to Venice for the the carnival, where I'll be for a week, and I've got a ton of things still to do. Pack everything. Make sure that I got everything and not too much, too much gear, which would be hard to carry. Um, yeah, looking forward to to this other adventure in in Venice. So. Um, Today we have uh, a very uh, lovely guest that was uh, already on our podcast in episode 140, I believe, and uh, she is calling us from, uh, again, I don't know if it's sunny or not, but <laughs> normally, usually sunny southern France, right? So, good, good afternoon, Pia, how are you? Hello, hello, Ugo, hello, Ralph. Thank you for inviting me to your show again. I'm very happy to be here. And yes, it uh, it is sunny. It was very, very windy the last days and very warm. And now it's cold, so a bit strange, but it's nice and pleasant. So, of course, we're talking to Pia Parolin, our friend. And uh, for, for those who don't know you, uh, you can maybe introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, I recommend everyone to go and listen to episode 140, but uh, just give us a... Maybe a, a scoop on what you've been up to recently, because it's so following your social media profiles uh, that you've <laughs> been doing exhibitions, talks, uh, workshops. So you're very active these days, right? <laughs> yes, it's uh, getting more and more and uh, it's not even planned. It's just happening. So, yes, just to, to explain who I am. I'm actually a biologist. I still consider myself as a biologist and not as a photographer in the first place. But uh, photography is taking more and more space in my life, and I'm very happy about it because I have always been taking photographs my whole life for fun and also for my work as a photo as a biologist. I have documented my study sites, my trees that I was studying in the Amazon, and and all the travels that I have been doing. And in the last three years, it has become something very present and intensive in my life and I gave more and more space to it in my life because uh, in a way I think there's a time for everything and when you're very busy at work and you have small kids then the time to relax with your camera in the hand is 
very short. And so I didn't take very many photos for 20 years. And since uh, three years, I really took up uh, to, yeah, focusing on, on photography and taking a lot of time and really taking my time to just leave with my camera in the hand to take pictures. And this has become something really uh, rewarding for just uh, a happy life. <laughs> and it has developed, I mean, I just started to take pictures and then some friends said, you should exhibit your pictures. And I, this is what I did. I started to print them and then I exhibited them and then uh, one thing came after the other. So now I have exhibited in several places in Germany and at present I have my first exhibition in Italy where I'm very happy because I'm half Italian, half German and uh, I kind of lost uh, contact with my <laughs> my home because it's 15 years that I live in southern France now. So uh, yes, I'm happy to to go back to my home close to not so far from where I was born, close to Venice uh, in Trieste. Uh, I have an exhibition which I opened last week and which is still on. And yeah. So well, well, can, if people, uh, some people might be listening to this episode from a place that is nearby Trieste, so you want to give some more information about uh, where exactly the exhibition is and when, where they can find your pictures. Yes, well, the exhibition is... Uh, quite central in Trieste, in the city of Trieste. First of all, that's the, the city which is almost on the border to uh, Slovenia, and uh, so it's really accessible from Austria, from Slovenia, from Croatia, whatever, <laughs> and from Italy as well. And um, the the place where I exhibit is the Academia Scaglia. It belongs to Enrico Scaglia. He's a very, very nice guy, a photographer who takes portraits of children uh, as the main thing but he also gives workshops and he takes portraits of uh, people and he worked as a he's a real photographer so he he, he earns his money with this and he worked as a um, I say he shot uh, advertisements and things and now he has his uh, academia and he invited me we met at the Trieste photo festival which is a really great festival taking place in October in Trieste and I happened to go there last year in, in October, and uh, it was fantastic. So I really can suggest if you are uh, somewhere near Trieste in, in October to uh, have a look at this uh, festival. It's really nice. And last year there was Martin Parr and uh, and uh, Nick Turpin and other really cool street photographers who were there, and they were really open-minded and talking to people. And then there were all these incredible photos of they call it urban photography. It's not really street photography. It's a bit everything related to people and cities and the urban life. And so that's where I met Enrico Scaglia. And he had a look at my pictures and invited me to expose for some weeks now. And so I'm really happy about this. I mean, you know, for you to have met him just a few months ago and to already have an exhibition there is really <laughs> impressive. <laughs> well, it's, it's just it happening. because. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's happened in this way because he, he hosted a workshop in his... Uh, academy in his in his gallery and uh, so in the coffee break we just talked and I told him that I take some pictures of the of the promenade des Anglais in front in, in Nice which is this nice long promenade along the seaside I, I go and look for sunlight and colors and 
And uh, then I take people who pass by and I like the blurry effect of a long exposition. So I have these colorful, lively pe uh, pictures of people. And I showed some of this to him, these to him and, and he liked them. And he said, well, I don't have any exposition, <laughs> anybody exposing in, in February and March. Why don't you just come here? And I, I agreed. I mean, and this, I actually... It's nice and it's flattering, but then it also means a lot of work because you have to, to print the pictures and you have to think about how to print them and which size and all the money that it cost. And then I, I had to transport everything. So I took my old uh, big car and uh, drove all the way the 700 kilometers through France and Italy to, to reach the place. And then we set it all up and it's uh, such a bunch of really nice people who helped me there and we had such a nice atmosphere with a lot of aperitivos in the evening and nice time uh, chatting and just having fun and I think this is what, what I like most about it, it's about sharing and seeing your pictures exposed is always nice but then sharing it with nice people is what it's all about. Yeah, I don't think people realize what's involved in putting together an exposition and the expense and the time and the, the like you said, the decisions to make, which ones to print, what size, you know, which go with, you know, because you can't print all your best, I imagine. Um, and so you have to decide, you know, which goes where and what. And there's a lot of decisions to make. And it looks easy or simple, you know, when people are standing there in front of your, your beautiful work, but they have no idea what goes on behind the scenes beforehand, right? Yes, that's completely true. I mean, the moment you open the exposition and you have the vernissage and everybody's there drinking and chatting, it's just perfect. But before that, oh my God, you want to die. <laughs> Especially if you, if you don't know the place and you have not been there physically before, uh, yeah. then it's really difficult because you don't know uh, where to position the pictures. And even if they send you photos or you, they send you a, a plan and you make up all your minds of how to do it, uh, the moment you arrive, you know, this don't work, this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and so you change it all again, and then uh, and then the, you have to hang them up, and then they have to be straight, and then they have to match, and everything. But it's really, really good, I mean, to to get involved in this. I, I really think it's something very rewarding, but it's a lot of work, yes. <laughs> Do you ever get that feeling that some people call the, the imposter syndrome? where you, you're about to, to open your exhibition and you start thinking, oh, what am I doing here? I'm not a real photographer. What people will see through me. Just, I'm just pretending or, or stuff like that. But it happens to <laughs> me, so <laughs> I think it's pretty Yes, common. it happens all the time because I still don't really consider myself as a real photographer, although I have done these expositions and everything, but I really think like... Uh, I'm a biologist taking photos <laughs> and then the people come and, and suddenly I'm the artist and they come to talk to me as the artist and it feels strange. It feels like I'm, I'm playing in a, in a theater role, <laughs> but it's nice. And I'm getting used to it now and I, I start to feel more comfortable and I start to um, talk like, yes, about my art and about how I, I, um, perceive this and how I, I have the the background what I think about my pictures and how I take them and why I take them and uh, I have a whole story that goes along with it and it's important to have a story at first I thought I'm not a photographer so I cannot really have a 
story and, and uh, I just have my pictures and that's it. But that's not true because uh, as soon as you start taking photos in a series, you start to build your own story and uh, the people who don't know you or don't know your pictures, they are interested in what is the background of all this? Why why do you do this? And uh, uh, so you have to tell your story. And my story is about this, uh, yes, colorful, beautiful uh, life, which in fact covers up uh, the story of uh, the, the the happening of uh, of this murder attack, of the terrorist attack that happened on the on the promenade. This is what uh, we were talking about in the first uh, interview. And uh, then people ask me, how can you possibly go back to a place where people have been murdered? There were 85 people killed on that day. And how can you go there and take these colorful pictures? And I say, well, that's my way of dealing with it. Because that night my kids were there and it was a very, very difficult moment in my life for different reasons. And I went back only very many months afterwards and... uh, that was my way of dealing with this attack that I say we have to go back to our uh, beautiful, relaxed, privileged life and not do what uh, these terrorists want us to do, that, which is uh, to change our life and to be uh, full of uh, fear and, uh, and change our lives and, and lock ourselves up in the houses instead of going out and living our lives. So mm-hmm. my way of expressing this, uh, yes, we, we have to live our happy lives and we have to show that we are very sad about what happened. And I am really, really, really concerned about all the families who lost someone dear. And I really don't want to make fun of these people at all with my pictures. So I'm, I'm, I try to be very careful. But at the same time, I, I, that's my answer to the terrorists. I say, we don't change our lives because you want us to be uh, full of uh, fear. I, I think it's, the, it's you know, a, a great way to, of dealing with it. And like you say, you know, they, they cast this dark shadow over it for a period of time. But you've gone back there and shown how beautiful and colorful and sunny it truly is and that they they can't cast that shadow over it for too long um how did you you have this very specific style did you um maybe get a a few shots that were somewhat similar to this and then realize that you know i'd like to do more of this i want to do more of this showing this motion this simplicity uh this unique minimalism and color palette it sort of evolve into this style? Well, I I went there and I played around with my camera and I, I liked the colors and I uh, liked the, the blurry aspect because it's less uh, scientific. <laughs> it's a bit mysterious, so it, it adds uh, something mystic to the pictures. And um, so, yes, it evolved because I... I got better and better at, at capturing the moment. It's not very easy in the first uh, moment be- at first because of the strong light and, and you really have to have the right settings. And the pictures uh, obviously evolved, but the, those that I expose are still the very first ones. From the first moment I arrived there, uh, the first weeks, let's say, 
I went there maybe once a week or something <clears throat> and took pictures. And those that I'm exposing in Trieste right now, three years later, are still the very first ones because I have been back there and I took pictures again, but they are not as expressive as uh, the first ones to me. <laughs> so I, I I go back because it's a nice place where I like to spend time, but uh, I didn't have these deep emotions. And I think these emotions are really transmitted in the pictures. And uh, the pictures that I take today are more those of a tourist who comes and sees things and then goes and leaves again. Whereas at the time I really went there because I was depressed and I, I had this, uh, this need to absorb the light and the colors and the, and the warmth. And I think it's really in the pictures. You can see this. <laughs> Are you still uh, doing events on workshops and other meetings at your uh, beautiful residence down in the Riviera? Got anything planned <laughs> yes. for the future? Yes, there, uh, there are several things planned. And uh, I have some people who come to, to Nice, to the area, and whom I meet on, and whom I join for, for workshops. Uh, some uh, are just happening in Nice, and then I, I help out with things. And some are happening also in my house. And we, we have workshops here where we uh, basically do street photography and then discuss the pictures and all this in the setting of, of this house where we can just relax and sit together and talk about photography and talk about life. And I think it's all about this uh, dialogue and exchanging ideas and uh, having your creativity growing, not by just sitting on your own and on your room, but by exchanging with other people who are very creative. And so I'm waiting for both of you, Ugo and Ralf, to come back here soon. We need to make uh -huh. it happen. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. You know, and photography can be such a solitary pursuit. And, and that's one of the good things about it at times, but it also, like you say, the camaraderie and sharing ideas and learning from each other is, is so important as well. So I think there needs to be a balance of that. We tend to often go out just by ourselves and, um, you know, there's benefits to that, I suppose, but certainly that camaraderie of being with other like-minded people is so important. I think both both things are complementary. So when I go out, I like to go in a group. That's fine to go with others because then I see more things than I would see alone. But when I really want to take photos or pictures um, with a deeper meaning, uh, I have to be on my own. I have to take the time that I need. I have to focus. I cannot just follow a group and run. I, I really need my time. And then I really want to be alone. That's when I'm more productive and creative. But then I also need the discussion and the, the exchange with others because if I'm alone, uh, I don't have the creativity that I, that I could develop by talking to others. And I also go to a lot of expositions. I look at a lot of book, at, at, uh, photo books because I get a lot of ideas by looking at the photos of others. And that doesn't mean that I copy them. It's just that I look at something and I say, ah, this is interesting and, and this kind of um, composition of a picture or that uh, detail. And then the next time I go, down, go out to the city, I, I still have this in my mind and maybe I look for similar situations. And it's very inspiring. 
So I think I need both. I need the the contact with other photographers uh, through whatever medium, and I also need to be on my own. One of the reasons we wanted to have a, this chat with you today is to talk about a country that you've recently been to. And it's, it's a country that has uh, always wanted to visit. And in, in the mind of many people, uh, it's a kind of a natural paradise, teeming with wildlife, nature, and uh, strange animals. But it also has a, a not so bright side, so to speak. So do you want to, to tell us about that? What's that country and what was your experience in it? Yes, it's a wonderful country. It's uh, Madagascar. I went there last August. Uh, I had to go there for work because uh, I'm in the <laughs> in the lucky situation that they forced me to go to all these very uh, remote places in the world <laughs> for for an annual conference that we have with the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation. And I'm I'm uh, a council and and on the board for for. Uh, 10 or 15 years now so i i don't miss one of these uh, conferences and they uh well it's a conference that is focused on biology and conservation tropical biology and conservation and it used to be in in our wealthy western countries in the state in the united states or somewhere but then we realized that the people from the countries that we target that we talk about conservation they hardly can afford to to come to this conference and so some yeah i think 10 or 15 years ago we started with this conference to move to those countries so we tried to have an american an african an asian uh, country every year turning and so this time it was uh, madagascar we had planned this for a long time um, but the situation in madagascar is uh, not always very stable it has been a bit difficult uh, like 10 to 5 years ago and uh, so now was the time, finally. The situation, the political situation has been stable for several years now. And um, the health situation is under control. So why not invite 800 tropical biologists to go and spend a week in a conference center and then spend some weeks traveling around? So this is what I did. I went there in August for a week of conference and some days of council meeting. And we had the largest ever gathering of tropical biologists in Madagascar, which is a hotspot of biodiversity. So this was really a wonderful meeting. And we had a lot of talks. We had a lot of uh, local people who could attend, a lot of uh, Malagasy students and Malagasy uh, scientists who gave talks, who assisted the talks, who, who were present during this week. It was a very fruitful meeting. And after this meeting, um, I went traveling with some colleagues and friends uh, for another almost three weeks through the, uh, yeah, I saw, let's say, the southern half of Madagascar. Madagascar is very big. It's, uh, some, some of my colleagues tend to say it's like, like a small continent. In fact, it's a very big island. It's in front of uh, the eastern coast of Africa, in front of uh, Mozambique. And but it's five or six hundred kilometers from the continent, and it has been isolated for for such a long time for I think ninety million years or something, and um, so it got separated from the main continent, from Gondwana land and from Africa, uh, for such a long time that man just was not there. 
And so all the animals and plants on this island evolved without the presence of humans, which is fantastic for nature because we are very destructive. And so the people uh, arrived on Madagascar only something between two and 4,000 years ago. There are different sources. And um, the problem is in these well, relatively short time, we have made a big mess in this uh, country. And uh, that's uh, always, yeah, on the one hand, it's this hotspot of biodiversity with fantastic lemurs and chameleons and all these really strange animals and the beautiful uh, forests and, and uh, deserts and everything, or semi-deserts. But uh, today, most of it is gone. Most of it is destroyed. So you always have this... Yeah, these two sides that on the one hand you see a really, really special place, fantastic landscapes, but on the other side you see also a lot of destruction everywhere. Pia, did I read correctly that 91% of the forest cover is now gone? Yes, that's exactly true. 91% of the forest cover is gone. Which means, I mean, Madagascar is is as I said, it's very big and you have different kind of uh, ecosystems. And uh, the eastern side is very wet. So you used to have a lot of rainforest there with huge forests and all these different kinds of lemurs there. And uh, then you had also uh, dry forests and the the central plateau, which is pretty high, 1,300 meters high, uh, where you didn't have these large rainforests, but there were some dry forests there. And almost all of it is gone, really almost all of it. There are some national parks which are protected and which work and which are nice. But if you look at the map, they are really so small and it's such a infinite amount of plants and animals, insects, mammals, everything that is just gone. And so these uh, forests that remain, they are really, really, uh, yeah, the, the, the last, uh, like, like the arch, <laughs> how do you say the Arca di Noe, the uh, Noah's Ark, <laughs> Noah's Ark that, uh, that remains. And it's, it's really sad in a way. But then we have to be positive and just be happy about what, what is there still. <laughs> Oh, is yeah. there any chance of it recovering? I mean, and over what period of time did the majority of that go? Is it, you know, over the last 20, 30 years or it's been over, over a long, long period of time? Well, uh, let's say that when people arrived, that's uh, some thousand years ago, they started already to exploit what they found and to to eat what they could get and the problem is with the animals it's a bit like galapagos if you're familiar with that uh the animals did not grow up with humans in their mind so they were not they were fearless so you, you can approach them even today you can approach the lemurs as if they were animals kept in a zoo because they're just they don't they they're not scared and that makes mm -hmm. them very vulnerable but uh, the, the people who arrived, arrived from, from Africa and from Borneo, which is also uh, um, where the origin of the Malagasy language uh, originates from. They have their own language. They were obviously colonized by the French uh, some uh, hundred years ago. 
And so the French left their imprint and French is still the official language next to Malagasy. But uh, the local people, maybe in the in the main big cities, they speak French and many of them speak English nowadays very well. And uh, But the local people in the countryside, they speak Malagasy. And this uh, language originates from the people who came from Borneo and from different countries uh, to this place. And so um, they they melted into this uh, island. They really lived their life more or less, I won't say in harmony, but uh, without over-exploiting it. But recently, the last, I, I would say the last 50 or 100 years, where first of all there was logging, which is really something that uh, is linked to the to the colonial period where the, the the precious timber woods were extracted and then transported to to France to Europe to the states to everywhere so the timber logging was a very very heavy impact and then afterwards the destruction went on also because of the cultural habits of the local people who nowadays obviously are not just a few people living here and there, but it's a big population. They have 23 millions of inhabitants, which is not overcrowded. So the, the country is not really overcrowded, but it's still a lot of people to live on an island where you don't have this many, those many resources. There's not so much water in, in, in large parts of the country. So people try to have a bit of agriculture in the highlands. They have, they grow potatoes and, and corn and rice. Rice is very important in their diet. And they have all kinds of vegetables up in the highlands. But uh, if you go down to the southern coast and to the western coast, it's very, very dry and it's very difficult to draw, to grow things there. So the, the main problem or one of the biggest problems for or the reason why the forests are gone is that the local people who are extremely poor, there's really, that's something that strikes you when you arrive in Madagascar, you have all these smiling people, but poverty is all over the place. And so these poor people, they have to eat. And what they eat is basically rice. And rice, you have to cook it with water and you need fire. And the the traditional way of these people, of these millions and millions of people, is that they go out uh, whenever they can and they grab whatever they, they find that is uh, can be used for a fire, and they, they buy charcoal if they have the money, and they make the little fires for heating and for their daily rice. Morning, midday, afternoon, they cook their rice. And if you put all of this together, this big amount of charcoal that is needed, this big amount of wood and of debris that they found find, uh, the, the twigs and whatever, uh, that has just killed the forests. And you cannot really blame the people because they don't have a big uh, choice. I mean, they have the children to be fed and so they need to to live with, with what they have. And since they are very poor, and this is basically the uh, the political system or the exploitation system that has been imposed in this country, that uh, it's just really an exploitation of the poor and so they don't have many options except for just go out and find something that they can use for burning and then make their little fires. You have to keep in mind also, I mean, I have never been so cold in any tropical country. It's really cold up there in the highlands. It's 1,300 meters high and 
and uh, I went there in August, which obviously is is uh, corresponds to our winter. So that was really cold. I mean, at night it gets really to freezing almost. Not not really, but you have only maybe five or eight degrees Celsius. And so the people uh, they heat their their houses and they they use uh, just wood for it. And yeah, that's really a problem. <laughs> Uh, I know you're mostly a street photographer, so your main interest is in people, right? In photographing people. And of yeah. course, I mean, Madagascar has beautiful wildlife, the lemurs and the the chameleons and others. But you're mostly interested in people, and you already said those people are always smiling, even though there's, a, there's a, a, lots of problems there. So... It, Tell us about your experience with the with Malagasy people. Uh, what is to photograph them? What's the, their reaction to to being photographed there? I think it's the best place to take pictures of people that I have seen, except for for Brazil or other countries that are very poor and where the people are always smiling at their life. It's so controversial. They are so poor and still they emanate such a happiness <laughs> i really admire this and in madagascar the people despite their poorness their poverty they are very very open-minded they look you right into the eyes and they are always have this big smile i have seen very few people who did not do this and uh, there are not these loads of tourists who arrive in madagascar there are quite some tourists who go there but most of them Uh, are in, in organized groups because it's not so easy to travel in Madagascar. It's quite a uh, difficult uh, infrastructure and there's lots of diseases, there's lots of problems. So we from the Western countries, we tend to look for the safer way to travel. And so we maybe sign up with a, with a travel uh, group From, from our countries, which is a nice way to travel. I signed up with a, with a local travel uh, agency and they were just fantastic. They are all uh, people from Tana, from Antananarivo, the, the capital, it's called Tana. And they took us to the places and they all sp spoke wonderful English and French and that was really great. And it was not only because of them that Obviously, they opened us many doors because being locals, they could talk to the people in Malagasy, which is obviously very nice and, and opens the doors. But I also realized that when I walked alone, and in some places it's possible to walk alone, even with your camera in your hand, um, the people would just look at me. And when I looked at them, both of us smiled and it was just great. And then I, I asked them either talking or just through my eyes uh, if I could take the picture and they always posed and were happy and made fun and and it was they, they are very proud and, and happy people and so it's really really fantastic to travel through Madagascar just to meet these people and and to get into contact with them take the pictures and uh, yeah it's really really uh, special so interesting I, I, I never uh, thought too much about going to Madagascar is um, is it something is this situation something that can be uh, reversed over time is it is it the time to go now before it gets continues to get worse what's in on that I'm not so sure about the stability of this country it has been quite stable in the last five years as I said 
and I'm confident that it stays stable, but then you never know, it can change. But what is a bit, uh, where, where you really have to be careful, I would not recommend to travel on your own, just because, first of all, the infrastructure is really, really bad. And if I mean bad, I mean, it's really bad. The, the roads are horrible and it takes you forever to drive also only 50 kilometers. And uh, so you, there are no traffic signs. It's really, really difficult. And I wouldn't recommend to go on your own, but you can easily go there with a, an organized group or a small family group or something. And there are some places, and they keep on increasing, where it's really dangerous to drive if you're a car alone. And uh, they will not let you drive at night at all and they they tend to form convoys so if uh, if you arrive in a certain place at at the at the control post on the on the road and it's past uh, 6 o'clock they will stop you and either you have to stay the night in a hotel or they wait for another three or four cars and then they have a police car accompanying you to drive uh, through just because there have been attacks by local people they just cause a they they close down the road with a with a car or something and then they will attack you and rob you so this has happened uh, some years ago and since madagascar is really taking care of the tourists they don't want this to happen and they really don't want uh, the tourists to be afraid so they have all the precautions so i felt very safe all the time because we respected what they told us we never drove at night we never drove through roads where they said you should not go there because there have been reports of attacks to tourist cars. So I know a lot of people, I have a lot of colleagues who work in Madagascar and they all say it's really a safe place if you behave in the right way. And so I can really recommend to go to Madagascar and and travel there and get to know this country and and also bring our money <laughs> to these kind of uh places where where it's uh, where they make a lot of efforts to have uh, us and to welcome us they have fantastic lodges really beautiful places all the places that i stayed are very clean very nice the food is great um i can just say positive things although i was a bit concerned before traveling there also because of the diseases if you look up the list of diseases in the internet you will never go to Madagascar. You just say, oh my God, they even have the pest down there in some places. And then the moment you arrive, you just see, well, you can have a very normal life if you respect certain rules that you have to respect in all countries that are tropical or, or a bit uh, out of uh, the normal path of the, the big tourist masses. And I really felt safe to every respect there. When we were talking about this interview, you, you told me about... Uh a place that you have been to that is uh, uh, where, where people take tourists to, right? Like it's a, it's a tourist visit, but it has a kind of, a, again, uh, a not so uh, beautiful side to it. So these uh, aluminum uh, manufacturers, uh, craftsmen, yes. craftspeople. <laughs> you want to, to tell us about that? Yes, well, uh, I have driven a bit around the country and these, uh, this travel company, they took us to all kinds of um, manufacturers. And it always works in the same way, which I think is very good. Uh, they take you to 
usually a private house or a private uh, uh, garden where people manufacture something like they they uh, make little bottles with sand of different color and and have all these figures of lemurs color painted in the bottle or another place they they worked uh, the horns of the zebus and then they they build some crafts which they sell to the tourists and so that you spend half an hour or something watching them working and they explain it to you in every detail and you learn so much about their people and their lives and where they get their material from and how they work the material and how they learn about this and and then in the end obviously they they sell you some of these things which is great because they are nice nice, nicely done and and well worked and uh one other place that they took us to is uh, just south of uh, the, the capital city, and that's the the aluminum city, the the place where they they work the uh, the aluminum. So they they collect all over the country uh, old metal parts from cars, from whatever metal they can find, and they bring it to uh, to this city, which is close to Ansirabe. And they they uh, melt it, and then they pour the melted aluminum into molds, which are made out of clay. And yeah, then they so this way they they form pots for cooking, and they form all kinds of things that you can use in the in the household. But they also form little baobab trees or other things that you can take away as a as a tourist, and it. It looks very romantic. You come to this place and you see these guys with their naked feet and naked hands uh, pouring the aluminum, <laughs> which they which they uh, melt using charcoal again because they don't have ovens that are really professional. They just have these clay ovens and they use the charcoal and they heat up the the, the aluminum to the, the degrees that it melts. I think it's about a thousand degrees Celsius, so it's it's sufficient to melt it, and then with their bare bare hands, they just pour it. And uh, oh my God, it's so scary to to look at this. And then they also breathe the the air of this uh, polluted uh, metal. And I'm not sure it's a very healthy thing to do, but that's their life, and they are happy because they have a job. They earn not much, but they earn some money. And they live on selling this, but I'm not sure they have a very high life expectancy. And um, in our group, we, we took some pictures there and I, th- I found this very interesting. And I thought uh, it would be interesting to to go deeper into this. And on our way back, we had an extra stop in the same city again and uh, took some more pictures. It's actually a place that I would like to to understand better how it all works. I just have a very superficial view of it because I spent two two times an hour or something. But it's still a very fascinating place to take pictures because it's also so incredible to a, to the eyes of a Western tourist. Um, but obviously, if you start to question the life of these people, then it's a very sad story because it's also so dangerous for them and I'm sure they they must have horrible accidents there everything is so rudimental and no safety precautions whatsoever so yes it's uh, it's something that accompanies you on the whole 
travel through Madagascar, just as in other countries where you see a lot of poverty. And at the same time, it looks very romantic and very spectacular on the pictures. So you can take really, really spectacular photos. And if you show them to people, they say, oh, wow, this looks incredible. Uh, but then also, yes, if you really question it, the, the life of these people is really, really difficult. And I come there as a tourist, I take some pictures home. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a bit uh, difficult to just come, take pictures and go and just, yeah, leave nothing. It's always <laughs> difficult to yeah. find a balance, right, between I mean, yeah. the, the fact that, of course, if you go there, and you you buy the, the products uh, that you're helping their their life conditions, but at the same time, maybe we are perpetuating a, a situation that, as you said, is not very healthy. So, but yes. if you don't go, what happens? Then might be even worse. Yes, exactly. So. Yeah, that that's what I think, and that's also true for the national parks. It's really really important that these national parks have tourists because we bring the money and we pay for the entrance of the national park and we pay the guide because we're not allowed to walk there on our own and we pay for the food and we pay for the hotel and this is really survival for these places so there is one national park that i could tell you about which is the rano mafana national park it's not so far from antananarivo it's uh, i think some hundred kilometers several hundred maybe yeah let's say 300 kilometers 400 i'm not so sure but it takes forever to go there. It takes really almost one and a half days to reach the place. But as soon as you arrive, you're in paradise. It's such a beautiful forest. And uh, they have a, a, a research station where I spent some time also. It's the Valbio research station, which has been built up by my colleague, uh, Patricia uh, Wright who is uh, an anthrop uh, um, uh, how do you say a primatologist she studies the, the lemurs and she came there when she was uh, i think it's 30 years ago or something and she was just studying the lemurs and she stayed i mean she she obviously went back to the united states where she is from and she did her studies at her university but she built up this research station in this national park. And she is a person who always really cared to take the local people and make them part of it. You cannot just protect the forest and keep the local people out. You really have to do the contrary, not only to give them work, but also to make it work, to, to protect the animals. You have to uh, teach the people. You have to tell them what is special about the trees and the forest and they can make a living in in this village that is close to the national park i think that probably everybody lives from the national park they do not live inside they live in the village on the side but the tourists come there because they want to see the lemurs and they spend several nights in the hotels and they go to the restaurant and they go to the craft shops and buy things and then they go and visit the parks and they leave their money there and if the people in this uh, town would not receive the money from the tourists, I think the national park would be in, in a real danger. And this is the mechanism. So I think it's important. So whoever wants a bit of adventure and really different uh, 
countryside and really fantastic animals should travel to Madagascar. I really recommend it. And make sure to go to Ranomafana National Park and visit the Valbio uh, Center where they have a lot of information and it's just great. We talked a lot about this country, which is, uh, I would say it has a lot of contradictions. Right. As you said, definitely a place to visit, but keep in mind uh, uh, what lies behind the, beneath the surface, so to speak, I, I would say. Uh, and it's important. I mean, uh, I'm really thankful that you, that you helped us see those, those situations that we, we sometimes, as tourists, as travelers, photographers, we, we tend not to see sometimes. And it's important to, to bring them to, to the light, so to speak. So um, on a different note, what's, uh, what's up with, with you? What's coming up for, for Pia Parolin next? Any new trips, exhibitions, uh, workshops coming up? Well, uh, concerning trips, I'm, I'm a bit behind with my work, so I really have <laughs> to cut down on, on, on big trips. I will go to Colombia next, just because this same conference of the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation will be held at Cartagena in uh, Colombia. So I will explore this country, which is really high on the list. I have seen many friends of mine who are not biologists at all. They are traveling now to Colombia. It's really something that uh, is back on the list of tourists. And uh, so I'm curious to see it. I have been to Colombia several times, but uh, 20 years ago was the last time. So I'm curious to see. And... Uh, Concerning projects, well, I'm writing a book right now. I just signed the contract. <laughs> so it's a photography book, and I will tell you more once I've written about it. I can't do this now because maybe I, <laughs> I will never finish it, so I, I don't say too much. But, yeah, I, I keep on uh, exploring different uh, things. It's interesting to see what uh, will come next, and I... I look forward to the surprises that life is bringing. <laughs> so maybe next time we'll interview, we'll tell us, you'll tell us about Colombia. I don't think yes. we ever had anyone <laughs> on the show talking about Colombia. It's another country that I would love to visit. I mean, I know people who have been there. I even know people who live there, but yeah, not, never been there. Still on the bucket list. Tire mm -hmm. um, my list as well. And you can come back and tell us about your new book when you're finished. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things to tell about, yes. <laughs> of course. So, and where can people read about your adventures and find more about you online? Well, I have a, a website, which is my name, piaparolinallinones.com. And uh, there I present my photos and some projects that I'm doing, some photo projects. And, uh, yeah. Uh, whoever is interested to visit southern France or let's say in the, the area of Nice I'm always interested in meeting other photographers so if you happen to be in Nice just drop me a line you'll find my email address on my website and maybe we can just meet for a coffee and talk a bit or maybe we can have a photo walk around or whatever you know, you this. know I'm already <laughs> planning to, to come down <laughs> sooner hopefully sooner than yes, later yes I'm waiting <laughs> I'm <see>. happy <laughs> I'm sure Ralph would love to come back too right yeah okay great. good it was great to to have you here again uh, and uh, all the best for your next trips and adventures and your book and um, 
and all of your photography activities. Uh, so you're very active in in this world, even though you're you say you're not a photographer, but you look very much like a very committed, very busy photographer these days. And, and it's just great. It's great to, to hear you. Well, you can live parallel lives, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do my part. <laughs> as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm very happy that you invited me to be on your show again. I'm, I'm really a a very uh, dedicated listener of your podcast and I'm happy you're on again and thank you very much it's a very big honor to, to be on, on your show good thank you very much so Ralph uh, any closing words or you can just uh, tell uh, our listeners where they can find about you yeah so I'd love to thank Pia for being on the show and I uh, hope to see you in mid-May when I'm in southern France Hopefully you will be around and we can talk <laughs> about those details. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, had a wonderful time with you and Hubert uh, this last year. But uh, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, as far as what, uh, what I'm up to, I am uh, speaking of Brazil, heading to Brazil next Friday. I'm going to uh, uh, down for Carnival. I was invited uh, by... Uh, some locals there to come down and do a scouting trip and I'm looking forward to adding uh, Rio and Carnival Brazil to our list of trips for 2021 and uh, coming up uh, this weekend I'm speaking in Los Angeles at the Travel and Adventure Show although this uh, episode I'm sure won't be out uh, that will be in the past but I'm coming up in March uh, Washington DC and some upcoming trips I have, uh, Costa Rica, Mexico's Copper Canyon, bigger and deeper than the Grand Canyon, uh, northern Spain's Basque Country and La Rioja, which I'm so looking forward to bringing a group back to, uh, Armenia and Georgia during the fall color season, which is just fabulous, and India and Cambodia round out the end of the year. Cambodia, one of my favorite places in the world. So anyone has an interest in checking those places out, please go to photoenrichment.com for more information and follow me on all the social medias at Ralph Velasco at photoenrichment. How about you, Hugo? What do you have coming up? Uh, as I said before, I'm going to Venice, but uh, as you said, this episode will probably be out when my Venice trip is in the past, but I'll definitely be doing another carnival, Venice Carnival workshop in 2021. So uh, look out for news on my, especially on my tours website, uh, tours.ucphoto.me. Uh, I've also got the our uh, friend, common friend, Steve Simon, who was a, a guest on the, on the show some time ago, who will be with me in Milan in April. And we still have a few spots left for that. If you want to do some street photography or urban photography, in Milan with with me and Steve Simon. Um, check out the website again. That's at the end of April. Uh, and I'm really you know, the uh, tour that I'm really looking forward to, and for which we still have a few spots left, is uh, Turkey, Cappadocia in October. Going to be photographing the incredible geology of the place and uh, the people there and the wild horses uh, in that fabulous land. So that's just a. Uh, a glimpse of what's coming up for me this year and as for everyone else who is uh, um, listening to this just remind that you can find this episode and all the other ones at our website at ttim.photo in particular this one is going to be episode 171 
So find us at ttam.photo slash 171. And please leave us a comment uh, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe using one of the various services that we use to syndicate our episodes. Or just share it with your, if you like this, share it with your friends and followers. Um, we would love to, to hear from them. Also, if you have any suggestions for people we might invite on the show or topics we might uh, you, you, you would like us to talk about, please let us know, leave us a comment, uh, use the contact form on the website. We're always listening and looking forward to your feedback, your ideas. So that's uh, really all for this week. We'll be back next week with uh, some other guests or maybe a one-to-one -one episode. We'll talk about some other topics we haven't yet decided about. But definitely we're back with the show. Hopefully going to, to do it every week, every Tuesday. We are out with a new episode and for the foreseeable future. All right. Now let's get out and shoot. Let's get out and shoot.